Today, uh, we're going through, through our series, and, and if you haven't been here um, yet, or, or if you haven't been here in a while, we're, we're going through uh, a series called The Greatest Story, uh, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus. And throughout the story, uh, we're essentially going through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So this is, this is quite a journey uh, which we're excited to be embarking on. And, and uh, as, part of our, as part of our philosophy for this series, we really want to encourage everyone to engage, to encounter uh, the Bible, and, and to, to, to engage the stories, to be able to bring them to life, to be able to discuss them more than just on a, a hearing the story on, on Saturday morning. So what we're doing is, is called our Greatest Story Reading Plan. And uh, if you go through our Facebook page, uh, Sun Valley, uh, .org or, uh, or Sun Valley Fellowship on Facebook, or if you go to our website, sunvalley.org, um, you can check out our reading plan. It's under the events folder you go to, or experience, and then you go to Greatest Story Reading Plan. And so what we do is every week uh, on Monday, or uh, usually on Monday, we, we post the story for the week. So this week we would have posted uh, a recommended reading. So we recommend you read Genesis chapter 28, certain verses, and then for expanded reading to help understand the context and the story a little better, we do some, some expanded reading, which was Genesis chapter 27. And we also post a couple of questions to kind of get your brain thinking and, and, and get you guys processing the story and, and engaging and handling it a bit. And one of the things that we really want to recommend, which I know some people are doing and we're excited about, is we recommend not just doing the study alone, but, but doing it with a group, doing it with other people, doing it with friends, with family. Uh, get together in, in your home and, and engage with the Bible. Read the story together. Tackle the questions and, and see kind of where it leads you and, and what conclusions you come to. And, and then we come back here on Saturday and then we engage the story again. And, uh, and today we're in Genesis chapter 28. This is the story of Jacob's dream. I'm sure a lot of you are, are familiar with the story of Jacob's dream. Uh, if you've ever read the books uh, by Arthur Maxwell. You guys ever read, do you guys know who Arthur Maxwell is? He's an old guy who paints beautifully. Uh, he's, he's, the, uh, let's see, he's the Bob Ross of the Christian world. <laughs> um, he... he does he author or does he just paint? I can't remember. He does both, right, I think? Um, so he has this series, the 10-volume set. I remember reading them as a kid. Um, and they're, they're beautiful. They're like this like, sky blue cover with like, a, a picture of a scene in the Bible and then in like, big like, yellow like, medieval-style letter writings that said Bible stories. And, uh, and I remember reading those as a kid, and I remember uh, being read those stories as a kid. It was fantastic. Uh, I actually, I actually, they were actually called Las Historias de la Biblia because uh, my mom read them to me in Spanish and, uh, and they have them translated in a variety of different, uh, different languages. And, and I remember every time I think of this story in Genesis 28, I picture, uh, if, you haven't, if you haven't ever read these stories uh, by Arthur Maxwell, if you haven't seen the pictures, I recommend you go out on Amazon and buy the whole volume set for $200 because <laughs> apparently they're very rare. <laughs> Um, but find them somewhere, ask someone to borrow them and check through the pictures, they're fantastic. But every time I read Genesis chapter 28, I picture the, 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 the painting by Arthur Maxwell. I actually couldn't find it on Google. I wanted, I wanted to, it's, that's how rare it is. I wanted to find it on Google Images to, so you guys could see it, but I couldn't, I couldn't find it. Um, and so I, I just, every time I think of the story, I picture this, this scene that he paints of the staircase and the angels and, and God and Jacob um, sitting there. But 
And we're starting in Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. If you have your Bibles with you, we'll give you some time to turn there. If you don't uh, have your Bibles, then we will have it available on the screen for you to follow along um, with. But we do want to give you a a short, and by short, (laughs) I mean not so short, uh, because we have quite a bit to get through. Uh, We do want to give you a recap of what has been going on in this story because we're skipping quite a few chapters. The last time we met and we did the greatest story reading plan, we were in the story of Abraham, and, and Abraham was just about to sacrifice Isaac, and, and we have that, that story, that sermon available on our, on our YouTube page, Sun Valley Fellowship, but we're skipping a couple of chapters, because this, is, this was chapter 22, now we're in 28, we're skipping six chapters of the Bible, we, but there's some important stuff that we want to know um, before we get into this story of Jacob's dream, and, and, and I don't want to take for granted that everybody knows the story, so we want to do some recap. So Abraham and Isaac, they patch things up. Okay, they have a heart-to-heart, and they have this conversation, and, and there's no hard feelings whatsoever over the whole sacrifice your son thing. They're, they're good. They're, they're father and son again. Um, interesting. And Sarah, unfortunately, she passes away. Um, she passes away, and, and then Abraham later, which, which actually, interestingly enough, I, I, I hadn't, hadn't known um, Abraham actually remarries, and he marries someone else, which, which is interesting, but there's no story about that because she's unimportant, unfortunately, in the story of the grand scheme. Um, but Sarah passes away. She's kind of the, the mother of the covenant, the mother of, of the descendants of Israel. And so she passes away, and, and Abraham sends the servant because he doesn't want, remember, they're living in Canaan at the time, and he doesn't want Isaac to marry a Canaanite woman. So he sends his servant back to his land, back to his home country, back to Ur, to find a wife for Isaac. And uh, and then this whole thing happens, uh, it's over a whole chapter, the servant asks God a very specific thing. He says, God, he says, I don't know who I'm supposed to pick, I don't know how to pick a wife, I have no idea. He says, he says the reason Abraham, my master, is sending me back is because he wants a, a godly woman who worships the same kind of deity, um, and so please like, give me some direction. And so he sets conditions and he says, um, whenever I come, because he comes to a well, he approaches a well, and he says, uh, whoever like, comes and, and gives me a drink of water and also gives water for my camels and my servants and stuff, that's going to be the woman I know. If she says this magical word, abracadabra, I'm going to know this is the woman for Isaac. And so he goes and he approaches, and, and, and then Rebecca comes along and she fulfills the conditions. She says, come, let me give you some water, and let me also give you some water for your camels. It's, it's the magic phrase that the servant has asked God of. And so now the servant knows, this is it. This is the woman. This is the woman that I'm supposed to have for my, for my, for my master's son. Um, and he talks to her and he finds out exactly where she comes from. Who are you? Who are you? What's your clan? What's your family background? And she figures out that, um, that she's actually in the same family line as Abraham. They're, they're like second cousins or, or she be, she's Isaac's second cousin, um, which to us is weird, but for them it was perfectly normal. Uh, to find out that someone was in your same family line meant that it was a good proposition for marriage. They wanted to, to have that good match within family lines. So the servant propositions Rebecca and Rebecca's family, and, and he offers all these jewelry and all these bracelets and, 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 a, and a nose ring and rings and all this other bunch of stuff. Uh, he propositions her and, and uh, Laban and, uh, and, and Rebecca's father, they agree. They say, okay, yeah, uh, we'll let you go. And so... Um, so she goes off and, and she, meets, she meets Isaac and, uh, and, and they get married. Two things we want to note first. Um, these aren't our points of the sermon, but just two interesting facts that I want to, to bring up about this story. Uh, as you read the rest of the Bible, as we encounter the rest of the thing, um, notice uh, wells and encounters, right? The, the whole like, 
idea of someone coming to a well and finding a wife, it becomes a motif throughout the Bible. You guys know what motifs are? Motifs are like an idea or a story or something that carries significance and, and it continues on. It's a pattern of repetition. So approaching a well in the Bible becomes a symbol of, of either finding a wife or becomes a symbol of life change, right? The servant approaches the well, finds Rebecca, Isaac marries Rebecca. Jacob approaches a well, finds Rachel, Jacob marries Rachel. Moses approaches a well, finds Zipporah, Moses marries Zipporah. As we're getting the pattern, right? Saul comes to a well, finds these women, doesn't marry the women, so breaking the pattern, but, but uh, <laughs> it's, and it's supposed to be funny. This is interesting. You laugh, but it's supposed to be funny. The Jewish readers are supposed to read this and notice, okay, Saul's a weird guy. He's breaking the pattern. Saul does something different. And you later find out Saul does, does something different. He doesn't worship God the same way. Uh, he performs um, his own sacrifices, which go against the covenant of God. So anyway, Saul encounters the women at the well, doesn't marry them, finds Samuel, gets pronounced king. Um, Jesus also uh, meets the woman uh, in, in, at the well, the Samaritan woman, right? Um, doesn't marry her, but there's a difference. Oh, this is a whole sermon. I don't want to do this part. But um, there's a whole thing we discussed, remember, where he says, um, uh, okay, we'll do it really quickly. Uh, Jesus says, like, where are your husbands? And she says, oh, I, I, I don't. I have five husbands. And he says, yes, you're right. You have had five husbands. And the husbands you're with currently now isn't your husband. Right? Remember she says that? Right? And then, then, they, then they immediately switch. If you read the story, it immediately switches. I'm going a little fast, sorry. Um, it immediately switches to where Jesus, she asks, where is the temple to worship? Remember that? Why the switch? Crazy stuff. Um, it turns out the Samaritans have had five different deities going throughout this time uh, period, in, or, or six, I think it was. In, and so they, they've had all these lineage or this line or, or history of worshiping different gods. And, and it carefully, coincidentally coincides with the exact number of husbands the Samaritan woman has, has had. And she's currently with a man who's not her husband. And then Jesus comes in, and this whole motif is when you come to a well, you find a wife. Uh, but this is a different thing because Jesus' mission is a different thing than finding a wife. He's finding um, a husband for, for Israel. Remember, Israel is the wife, has to marry. And so um, the Samaritan woman saying, oh, I've had all these husbands. And Jesus is like, it's true, you have. And the man you're with currently isn't your husband. It's this parallelism, this symbolism that's happening between all the, all the false gods the Samaritans have worshipped. And then Jesus steps in and says, I tell you the truth. I am he, or we did that sermon, I am the one, I am the Messiah. And so he introduces himself as the husband, not the physical husband, but as the spiritual husband for the people that have been found. Got it? Whew. Okay, cool. So we know. So wells, life change. You approach a well, life changes. Okay, that's the pattern in the Bible. Um, also other patterns that we realize uh, in chapter 24 is that um, Isaac and Rebecca are weird. They're weird. Nobody knows why. Isaac is doing something in a field. Uh, this isn't even in my notes. I have to tell you this because it's hilarious. Um, Isaac is doing something. We don't know what he's doing. The Bible translates as meditate. Um, but there is no other word. The Hebrew word they use is not used anywhere else in the Bible. The scholars have no idea what he was doing. They just translate it as meditating. He was doing something in the field. And Rebecca, uh, and then in the Bible it says that Rebecca came off of her camel. But in reality, what the Hebrew literally says is Rebecca saw him and fell off her camel. He was doing something really weird. So she's like shocked because Isaac is this strange guy. He like, he's not a hunter. He's not a masculine man. He kind of just like, anyways, that's why he attaches himself to Esau. Oh my gosh, there's so much going on. Um, he attaches himself to Esau because he loves Esau because Esau's a hunter and Isaac always wishes he was a hunter and then blah, blah, blah. Anyways, so 
sorry, we're going really fast because I really want you guys to get this. This is exciting stuff. Um, so Rebecca and Isaac, they marry, they have children, right? Um, Rebecca is kind of a trickster. She has a trickster spirit, right? We recognize this because in the story, it happens. She helps Jacob deceive uh, their father Isaac, right? And you also see Jacob has also a deceptive spirit, right? His name is Jacob, meaning heel grabber or deceiver, someone who causes people to stumble. Um, and we've already met Laban uh, in the story uh, where, where the servant propositions Rebecca for marriage. So the, the, the pattern continues. Jacob is the trickster. Rebecca is the tri trickster. So it stands to reason the whole family line is full of tricksters. Laban, same thing, right? We find out later Laban tricks Jacob into marrying the wrong woman, the wrong daughter, blah, blah, blah. <sighs> okay. So now we're at the story. They have kids, Jacob and Esau. And question, pop quiz from last time, uh, from last week's reading, what do Jacob and what do Esau mean? What do the names Jacob and Esau mean? I said what Jacob means. Someone shout it. Someone say it. I need responses. Deceiver, Deceiver right? Um, that's, that's the idiom. Um, uh, it's a Hebrew idiom for he deceives, but, but Jacob, you're right, it means deceiver. That's the connotation we get. But his name literally means heel grabber, right? Imagine you're walking, someone grabs your heel, you're probably going to stumble, right? Why is someone grabbing your heel? I don't know. But Jacob does that. He's a deceiver. He causes people to stumble. What does Esau mean? No one remembers. Yeah, it means hairy. Um, and not like the name Harry, it just means like he was a hairy baby. He came out like Sasquatch. And, um, and he was also like, it also, it sounds like um, red or ruddy, right? Um, some people think it means that his skin color was a little red. Um, but what the Hebrew is kind of uh, hinting at is that this red and ruddiness is associated with paganism, with barbarism, with false worship. So what it's hinting at is that Esau is a kind of barbaric, physical, false worshiper. Um, this is important. So, so the Bible is describing these names as characteristics, uh, is describing them as, as, as deception, thought, consciousness, the mentality. Uh, that's Jacob, his mind, right? Deception, thought. Um, while Esau is described with characteristics that describe physicality, presence, strength, and so what the Bible is doing is it's showing us Jacob and Esau with just their names. It's showing us that Jacob was the brains of the, twin, uh, of the twins because uh, he's content to stay at home and, and to do all the stuff uh, that requires this mental fortitude. And Esau, on the other hand, is the brawn of the two twins who spends his time outdoors hunting and doing all this other stuff. And so the story describes these two brothers and it foreshadows the story that will eventually fulfill itself and the prophecy that is given to Rebecca in Genesis 25-23, the prophecy says, two nations are in your wombs, and two people from within will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And so this is the same chapter, chapter 25, a story fast forwards. We're still in recap. I told you it wasn't going to be short. Um, we're still in recap. And, and, and 25 fast forwards, a few decades, and we have Esau coming back from a hunting trip, <clears throat> and he's famished. He is hungry, and he's coming back, and he encounters um, Jacob, and, and the text says he comes in from the open country to see Jacob cooking a pot of stew. Some of you are familiar with this story, and your Bible will likely say something like this. Esau speaks, and he says, quick, 
let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. But this is what the Hebrew is actually saying. Remember their names, Harry, and, and what it means, and, and Jacob, heel grabber, and, and kind of the connotation. So it says Esau, and the connotation is hairy, ruddish, big, brutal, like not thinking, said to Jacob, the deceiver, please, I pray, Jacob, uh, Esau says, let me devour, right? Uh, here's a, a brief note. The English translates oftentimes as just eat, but the Hebrew word specifically means to eat ravenously, uh, to swallow greedily, almost like to just slurp it without chewing. That's the, that's the connotation the Hebrew word is actually using. So you have this image of this barbaric, brutish, hairy man coming in, let me devour, right? let me swallow, whatever, whatever his voice sounded like. Uh, that voice is not practiced, it sucked. Um, but he, he's the kind of guy who's just going to eat greedily, right? Not stopping, not even stopping to breathe. That's the image we're getting. So Esau says to Jacob, please, this is what he literally says in the Hebrew, please, I pray, let me devour this red, red stuff because I am faint. He doesn't say stew. He doesn't say, let me devour the red lentils. Let me devour the red stew. Remember, Esau's kind of brutish. He doesn't think. And so the Bible literally says, let me devour this red, red stuff. Hilarious. I laughed. Anyways. So Jacob says, let me devour this red, red stuff. And, or Esau says that. And then Jacob agrees, okay, I'll let you. Uh, but in exchange for your birthright, I'll trade you your birthright for this red, red stuff. And Esau says, he says, look, I am about to die. What good is my birthright to me? And you know, sometimes I read the story and Jacob isn't always my favorite person because I'm like, man, like Jacob is taking advantage of a situation. He's deceiving Esau. But the realities of the Bible paints a little bit of a different picture. Remember, Esau is rash. He's unthinking. He, he, he can't even say red stew. He just says red, red stuff. That's the way he describes it. Esau makes poor decisions. And, and he's, not, he's not that smart of a fellow, which is why they, he says that whole red, red stuff stuff. Um, but that sounded funny. He fails to understand, Esau fails to understand that he can eat somewhere else. Jacob's food isn't the only option. Verse 27 of, of chapter 25 says, Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Jacob didn't really uh, stray far off from the tents. He liked staying at home with his mom. Uh, Rebecca loved Jacob. They were the favorite. It, he was kind of a mama's boy. And so he loved sticking around the tents. So as Esau comes out from the open country, he meets Jacob, who's cooking a pot of red, red stuff. But Jacob is not far off from the tents. They're not in the middle of nowhere. Jacob, or Esau could easily sidestep Jacob and go home and see his mom and his dad and say, I'm hungry, feed me. And they would have fed him. But Esau doesn't think like that. Esau doesn't think of the possibilities. He just says, what good is my birthright if I'm hungry? The thing he's thinking is he's immediately thinking, what's most important right now is not what I get later, it's what I'm feeling currently, hunger. So he sells his birthright. And he doesn't appreciate his inheritance. He sees his birthright as a commodity that can be traded for momentary pleasure. Remember I said Esau's redness is associated with barbaric tendencies, with paganism, with a lust for self-gratification. And in case you're wondering what the birthright is, it wasn't just the wealth that Isaac inherited from his father Abraham that he passed down to Esau. 
the birthright was also the covenant promise that Yahweh had made with Abraham. That covenant promise to bless them, to become a great nation, to become a great name, that passed on to Isaac, which would later have been passed on to the firstborn Esau, because Esau came first. He was a little older, even though they were twins. So Esau would have inherited that stuff, but Esau doesn't care for it. Esau sells God's blessings for a pot of red, red stuff. Chapter 27, still in recap. Don't worry, my sermon's shorter because of the recap. Chapter 27, Rebekah and Jacob conspire to steal the remainder of Esau's firstborn blessing. Jacob, has, he's already lost the inheritance. He's already lost the birthright, the primogeniture. Uh, but Isaac can still give him a word of blessing. And so uh, Rebekah does not want that to go to Jacob, uh, or to, uh, to Esau. She wants it to go to Jacob instead. Isaac is old. He's bedridden. He can barely see. His senses are dying. And he asks Esau, he says, go hunt me some game. I want like some hearty meat. Cook it for me and I will give you a blessing. And Rebekah overhears this and she decides to steal this blessing for her favorite son, Jacob. So what they do is uh, somehow they, they glue goat hair to Jacob's body. They clothe Jacob in Esau's dirty clothes so he kind of smells like him. And then Jacob goes before his father Isaac, smelling like, like Esau, and pretends to be Esau and asks for the blessing. Isaac is, is, is not the smartest guy either because he kind of smells just like, oh, he's like, you smell like my son Esau, but you don't sound like him. And Jacob's like, oh, dad, I'm just really sick. I have a frog in my throat, so my voice sounds different. And Isaac's like, okay, cool, let's bless you. So he does it, and, um, and this time, Jacob is a lot less excusable. Esau sold off his birthright. He didn't care about God's stuff. He gave it away. This time, Jacob is actively stealing it. Esau wanted it, but Jacob stole it. So this, this time, he's a lot less excusable, in my opinion. And Esau is furious at what happens. He's already angry. He despises his birthright. He hates Jacob for, for stealing his birthright, even though he sold it. Uh, and now he wants the blessing, but Jacob has now stolen it. Um, so Esau, he, Esau swears to kill Jacob. He says, as soon as the days of mourning, he says, my dad Isaac is going to die. When those days of mourning are over, I'm coming after Jacob. I'm killing him. I'm taking his life. Rebecca finds this out. The servants, they love Rebecca, so they tell Rebecca this whole thing. And, J and, and Rebecca says, I cannot have my favorite son dying. I need to send him off to Haran. And so she makes up an excuse with Isaac. She says, I don't want uh, Jacob marrying a Canaanite woman. Let's send him off to, to our, our father's uh, place to Haran so that we can, he can find a wife. So they go. Jacob is now running from Esau's wrath. And this brings us to our current story, Genesis chapter 28, 10 to, 10 to 22. And it says this. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out to Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and laid down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a ladder resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above the ladder stood the Lord, and the Lord said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. It says, I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done 
what I have promised you. When Jacob, it says in verse 16, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up upright as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And, all, and of all that you give me, I will give to you a tenth, Jacob says. So Jacob is on the run from Esau and he stops in the middle of his journey to rest and he sleeps and he has this dream. And it's not just any regular type of dream, it's specifically a theophany. A, the a theophany, in case you don't know what the word is, is a combination of, of the Greek words theos and phinane. Theos meaning God, phinane meaning to show. So theophany is a showing of God. It is a, rev a revelation of God, a visible manifestation of God to humankind. So Jacob has this theophany, this encounter with God, and he sees them at the top of this ladder and this dream not only reveals God, but it also reveals to Jacob the kind of God that Jacob's family serves. God speaks to Jacob and he says, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. God identifies himself as the God of the clans. Because the ancient people, they, had, they usually had multiple gods, but sometimes they took a specific God as the God of their family clan. So Abraham, that's what he had done with Yahweh. Yahweh had made this covenant had become Abraham and, 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 and Isaac's family clan God. And Jacob now understands this. He understands, okay, this is the same God that promised Abraham. This is the same God that gave the blessing to Abraham. This is the same God is this, that is the shield and reward of Abraham. He understands that because Yahweh introduces himself, I am the God of your forefathers, Abraham and Isaac. I am the God of the clan. So God continues to describe, God continues to express himself, and he gives the exact same promise he did to Abraham, he gives it to Isaac. He says, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you were lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, the north and the south. You will be a blessing, and you will also be blessed. Right, this is the promise that Esau should have inherited, but was instead given to Jacob because Esau sold it off. So Jacob is amazed at this encounter with God, and he immediately turns the stone he was using as a pillow into a pillar, and he pours oil on it. He anoints it. And he says, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he says this. This is key because this is going to be our lesson for today, our one lesson. He says, surely the Lord is in this place. Surely the Lord is in this place. This is our one lesson for today's sermon. The Lord is in this place. God is here right now. And the amazing thing that I find in this story is that God met Jacob exactly where he was. This wasn't Mount Sinai, the holy mountain. This wasn't some temple structure for Yahweh. This was the middle of nowhere. God met Jacob in the midst of his wanderings, of his wanderings. And Jacob named that place Bethel, Beit meaning house, and El is patriarchal, patriarchal name for the God. So he names this place House of God, Beth. L. And this isn't some house in the sense that people have to come here 
to encounter God, that God is enclosed within these four walls and, God ha- and people have to come here to find God. That's not what the, the term kind of signifies, not what the expression is saying. This is, what I take is that this is a house in the sense that in this place, God welcomed Jacob into his presence. God was hospitable, showed hospitality to a fugitive on the run. Surely the Lord is in this place. See, God is present in the midst of Jacob's most difficult time. Jacob is on the run from his brother, from Esau, from the vengeance that that Esau wants to enact. And mind you, this vengeance isn't unlawful. Jacob did deceive his father. He did steal what was rightfully Esau's. But there, where we find a criminal, a thief, a liar, in that place, God presents himself. God's presence isn't hidden from us when we make mistakes. God's presence isn't hidden from us when we make mistakes. I know I have felt that way personally. Sometimes I have felt, and I don't know if you've ever felt this way, that like when I make a mistake, I felt like God's presence is just hidden. Sometimes I feel like when I screw up, that like God's nowhere to be seen. He wants nothing to do with me. He runs away because of the sin that I've committed But the reality of the story is that God is present even when we make mistakes. In the middle of our wandering, in the middle of our search, God is present. If God ran away every time he would made a mistake, then God would have run away from the very beginning. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, God would have left. But instead, in that story, the moment Adam and Eve sinned, we find God coming to them and asking Adam, Eve, where are you? And we don't find God coming with judgment and punishment. Rather, we find God looking to commune, to relate, to abide. He wants to be in your presence. So even when our mistakes are self-inflicted, just like the story of Jacob, just like the story of Adam and Eve, when we make mistakes, God isn't running from us. Rather, he is coming towards us, looking for us to relate, to communicate, to abide, to welcome a fugitive into his presence. And Jacob says, surely the Lord is in this place. You see, when God meets Jacob, God re-utters the promises. And he says, I promise to be with you wherever you go. I know what you're doing. I know what you've done. I know you've stolen. I know you've lied. I know that you're a sinful person. But God's promise is this, I promise to be with you wherever you go. You see, when we meet with God, he keeps his promises. His promises aren't conditional on whether or not we are perfect or whether or not we perfectly obey. God keeps his promises regardless of who we are or what we've done. God's faithfulness is independent of our faithlessness. God's faithfulness is independent of our faithlessness. And this is Jacob's vow in verse 20. He says, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, if he will give me food to eat, if he will give me clothes to wear so that I may return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. That's not the vow of a person who is faithful to God. That's not a person who just loves the Lord for loving the Lord's sake. This is a man who will worship God conditionally. That's what Jacob says. He says, you will only be my God if you clothe me, if you feed me, if you bring me back safe. 
That's what Jacob says. You will only become my personal God if you do all the things that I want. And for a moment, that's okay. Jacob isn't faithful. He's just desperate. And what I find is that oftentimes in our desperation, that's where God comes through the clearest. That's where God comes through the clearest. You see, you may be, I don't know why you're here. I don't know why you're at church today. You may only be at church because maybe your parents dragged you here. Maybe you were 14 years old and your parents dragged you. Maybe you're 67 and your parents are still dragging you to church. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you may only be here today because there was nothing better to do on a Saturday morning. You may only be here today because it's tradition to come to church. It's what your family has done for years, and you would feel weird if you didn't come to church on Saturday. Maybe you're only here at church today because there's, you know there's a delicious potluck happening after the service, and you just want some free food. That's okay. You're all invited. Maybe you're only here today because you want to hang out with your friends, or you want to see that special person you only see on Saturdays. Maybe you're, maybe you're here because... You're genuinely searching for something deeper, even if you aren't quite sure what it is yet. Maybe you're here because you feel that worshiping and community is an integral part of our, of our personal relationship with God. Or maybe you're like Jacob. Maybe you're here because you hope that if God sees you at church once a week, that he'll provide you or grant you a wish or, or something. I don't know. But you know what? All of those reasons are okay for the moment. You know, some people might say that you need to be here for the right reasons, but that's not what I think, and I don't think that's how God feels either. I think what's more important is not why you're here, but rather that you are here. It's not important why you're here. It's important that you are here, because wherever you are on your journey, whether you're running away from God, or whether you're running back to God, or whether you're walking with God, God still wants to have an encounter with you. God still wants to have an encounter with you. I want to invite the band up as we close. You see, it's in the midst, it's in the midst of your journey that God appears before you. It's in the middle of your wanderings that God appears before you. No matter what your reasons are, whether you're like Jacob and say, if God does all of this stuff, then I'll worship you, God will meet you there. If you say, man, I don't like God, I don't believe he exists, I don't want anything to do with him, God will meet you there. And if you say, God, I want everything to do with you, I want you to be an integral part of my life, God will also meet you there. Whether you're running away, whether you're running back, whether you're walking with, God wants to have an encounter with you. You see, that, that is the unexpected narrative of Jesus. The fact that Jesus is willing to encounter us in whatever condition we find ourselves, on whatever part of the journey we find ourselves on. You see, we are in Bethel right now. We are in the house of God. And I'm not talking about a building. I'm not saying this just because we're inside the four walls of a church. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we are here in the house of God because it is in this place, in this space, wherever we are, this is where God is, where Jesus makes his dwelling place. Surely the Lord is in this place. And this place is wherever we are. The Lord is wherever we are. See, this is the gate of heaven. This is where heaven meets earth, where Jesus dwells 
and promises that he will be with us throughout every leg of the journey. No matter where we are, Jesus is there. Surely the Lord is in this place. I want you to close your eyes for a second. Close your eyes and bow your heads for just a second. And I want you to picture what Jacob saw. Picture in your mind what Jacob is is experiencing, this encounter, this theophany, this dream. You see a vast desert all around you. You feel the cool desert wind gently blowing by, the sand beneath, beneath your feet, beneath your hands. And as you look up into the night sky that is littered with bright shining stars, you see a ladder, a staircase that stretches all the way from where you are up into heaven. And then you see angels glowing brightly, descending and ascending, coming back and forth, connecting with you, connecting with God, a soft glow surrounding them. And on top of the ladder, you picture God. Whatever manner God looks like to you, doesn't matter. What's more important isn't that you picture God, but in this vision, you feel God. You feel his presence envelop you like a warm blanket on a crisp fall morning. You feel it resonate all around you. You feel it pouring through your bones from the top of your head all the way down to your toes. You feel this presence residing on you. You feel a sense of peace. You are assured that God goes with you wherever you go, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. You feel the calm wash over you. You feel his presence surrounding you. Surely the Lord is in this place. Say it with me. Surely the Lord is in this place. Say it again. Surely the Lord is in this place. Say it again. Surely the Lord is in this place. Open your eyes. You see, God wants to have an encounter with you. Surely the Lord is in this place. He wants to meet you wherever you are. He is here right now because he goes wherever you go. Surely the Lord is in this place. Are you ready for an unexpected encounter with Jesus?